0: Scripture reading is from Isaiah 49, chapter 49, verses 8 through 16. Please stand if you are able. Thus saith the Lord In a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed among, along the ways. On the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all the mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. This is God's word.
1: I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 49 as we pray together this morning. Father, as we begin a new year, we pray that you would be with us, that you would bless us by revealing truth, convicting our hearts, helping us to see our need of you, and then revealing. How sufficiently you have met our need. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning as we open Isaiah 49, that you would give us wisdom from this passage, shape our lives according to its wisdom, and, Lord, give us more, more joy in your love and in your compassion. We ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, of course, it is the beginning of a new year, and with a new year often come resolutions. I'm sure some of you have made some New Year's resolutions. I'm sure some of you have broken New Year's resolutions. They're goals that set about changes that we want to make in the year that's ahead. Often resolutions are things like, I'm going to eat healthier, or I'm going to read more, or I'm going to use my phone less. Resolutions are rooted in the optimism that this year is going to be better. I'm going to work harder, stay focused, keep my eyes on the prize. And become the person that I want to be by sheer force of will. Here at Westgate, as we begin the year 2024 together, we are focusing on prayer. It's something that every Christian knows is important, but also knows that he should make more of a priority. Every Christian knows that prayer is a precious gift from God, but also knows that she should treasure it more than she does. No matter how devoted someone is to prayer, they always know that it's more important than their lives make it seem. So, in a way, it's like eating healthier, or reading more, or using our phones less. We're starting 2024 with the optimistic hope that this year is going to be better. But it's not a resolution. Our goal is not to become people of prayer simply by grit and determination. Instead, It is to remind ourselves of the precious gift of communion with God, to meditate on the vast chasm that Christ has bridged in order for us to have a way to know God and then to joyfully meet Him in prayer. The fact is that we will not prioritize prayer. We will not be people of prayer if we think of it like a New Year's resolution. I think New Year's resolutions are great if they're focused on things like eating more vegetables. That's a great thing to focus on. But if our resolutions are attempts to take control from the Holy Spirit in the work and process of sanctification, then we are in for disappointment. We don't become the people that God has called us to be on our own. So, the idea that I'm going to work harder, stay focused, keep my eyes on the prize, and get holy means that we're suddenly working above our pay grade. Instead, if we think more about the gospel, about the one who has invited us into his presence, we will find that prayer is something that we cannot do without. So it's not a resolution. It's more of a reminder of what Christians already know and an invitation to those who don't know yet. Two weeks ago, before the snowstorm, Bruce preached a sermon from Luke chapter 2, and we looked at the, 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 the man Simeon a man who was devoted to prayer. Prayer flowed out of his heart, and we saw the sort of character that is a a person devoted to prayer. This week, though, we're looking at a passage from Isaiah 49, which tells us a lot about the one that we pray to, because it is God's character that stirs our affections, that makes us long to be close to Him in prayer. If the basis for our prayer life is to be resolutely devoted to it, It will not last. But if the basis for our prayer life is the wonder and the majesty of God, we will find that we cannot go a day without it. I admit that Isaiah 49 is an interesting choice for a sermon on prayer. You may have already noticed that the word prayer doesn't occur in this passage. Nowhere in this passage are we taught how to pray or are instructed to pray. But if we immerse ourselves in what it does say, we will become people who pray more, because it helps us understand who God is, and then to realize what a precious gift prayer really is. Isaiah 49 was written to people in trouble. They are the remnant of the Hebrew people that had survived civil war and corrupt kings, and then the arrival of the Babylonian Empire, which was the most frightening thing yet, After a siege that lasted over two years, Babylon breached the walls of Jerusalem and then swiftly conquered the city. They demolished buildings and tore the temple down brick by brick. And of the people that they didn't kill, most were put in chains and hauled away back to Babylon as captives. It's the darkest period in the nation's history, and it seemed to many people like it might just be the end of their history, the end of the Hebrew people. The first 39 chapters of this book are devoted mainly to warning people about the disaster before it happened, explaining that it was actually God at work, raising up Babylon as an instrument of his justice because his people had abandoned the law and turned toward idols and corrupted their worship at the temple. They had ignored God's calls for repentance, his warnings of judgment, and then often mocked or murdered the prophets that God had sent to proclaim the word. Now, Isaiah has been appointed by God to go and tell people that time is up. It is judgment day, but there is still hope. Beginning in Isaiah chapter 40, God comforts his people, promising them relief and restoration and mercy. They will not be in Babylon forever. They will not be under God's judgment forever. He will bring them out. Even though God does not ignore sin, not a single one, his heart is full of grace, which we see in the opening of our passage. Thus says the Lord, we read in verse 8, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Even though they are a devastated people, they are not lost. Even though they have faced God's bitter providence and his righteous answer to their sin, he has not abandoned them. For people trapped in exile, this passage is like a cup of cool water in the desert. It is a promise to people that things will get better, that hope is not lost because he is full of grace. The bitter providence of exile and the promise of rescue and relief are an invitation for these people to draw close to God, and that is something that God's people do in prayer. The 19th century Scottish pastor and poet George MacDonald once wrote that the main object of God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great and endless need, the need of himself. What if the good of all of our needs, he wonders, is in this, that they help drive us to God? Communion with God is the need of the soul beyond all other needs, and prayer is the beginning of that communion. For the remnant that is living in Babylon, that is exactly what's happening. Their eyes are open, wide open to their sin, and they see how deeply they need God's mercy and forgiveness. And the situation that they're in right now has helped them to see that rescue can only come from one place. They will not save themselves. They cannot possibly hope to overthrow Babylon and march back to Jerusalem. Here in this passage, in Isaiah 49, we see something about the one they are setting their hopes on. These verses in chapter 49 reveal six important things to us about God and His character, perhaps more, but we're focusing on six. Any one of them is enough to bring us to our knees in prayer, but together they help us to recognize how precious a gift prayer really is. First, This passage reveals that God's people should pray because he is powerful. He promises to bring salvation, to establish the land, and to bring his people back to their home, and even to give the most desperate among the people a place to call his home. To set prisoners free, he says in verse 9, and to bring people out of darkness and condemnation and captivity. And God says, of all of these things, I will do this. This is in direct opposition to a human tendency to think in terms of strategies and contingencies when we are confronted with challenges and hardships. In our lives, when we face difficulties, our first impulse is to think, okay, how am I going to deal with this? If we find ourselves out of work, we turn to the want ads. If we're diagnosed with an illness, we start thinking of treatments. If there is relational tension with a friend or family member or we have a financial shortfall, we think, what do I need to do to fix this? It's not a bad thing, of course, to think about how to fix problems. It's not a bad thing. But if that is all we do, it is surely a foolish thing. If I had appendicitis, if I right here in this room right now doubled over because my appendix was about to burst and I needed surgery to remove my appendix, it would be crazy for me to attempt to deal with that situation by myself. If I said to you, somebody hand me a scalpel, you would say, I hope you would say, what are you thinking? You cannot do this on your own. You need help. But as crazy as that is, it is what we do all the time. Something goes wrong and we say, okay, I am going to figure this out. And we completely ignore the one who is most able to help us when we need it whose power is greater than whatever difficulty that we're facing in the moment for god's people in captivity there was nowhere else to look they had no hope of deliverance on their own from the very bottom where the people are now there is only one place that they can look and it is up and to them god says i will do this i will rescue you but just as it is for us their circumstances but their faith in god's power to the test In the 6th century B.C., when Jerusalem fell, there was one thing that people feared more than anything else on the planet, and it was Babylon. Its armies were larger and better equipped than any other fighting force that had come before it. The sheer scope of the empire itself was like nothing the world had ever seen. But in chapter 47, God reminds his people that he is the one who has raised up Babylon in the first place. There's simply a tool in his hand that he has raised up to bring his judgment, and he will be the one who brings that same judgment to Babylon itself. Only God is able to do this. Only God is more powerful than the very powerful things that we fear in this world. Only God is sovereign over the rise and fall of empires. He is powerful, and remembering that, his people turn toward him in prayer, trusting that he is sufficient to meet whatever needs we lay before him. Secondly, God's people should pray because He listens. God says in verse 8 of our passage that He has answered the people. They cried out to Him, and He heard them and answered their cry. Like when the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt, and they cried out because of their misery, God answered their cries. He heard them, and then He answered them with a display of power that shocked not just Egypt, but Israel too. God listens when his people pray. That may not sound like much to you. Isn't that the whole point of prayer? Except that 99.999% of the time, that's not how it works. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, people fall down in worship and cry out for relief, and the sound of their voice disappears into a void. There is no one on the other end of the line. That's a recurring theme in the book of Isaiah, actually. At various points in this book, God confronts His people for their idolatrous habits. They had adopted some of the local gods from the other nations that surround them and built shrines in their houses and places of worship in their towns. But God tells the people over and over in this book that they are being utterly foolish. And in one of my all-time favorite passages of Scripture from Isaiah 44... God mocks the whole concept of idolatry and says, Don't you realize, you people of mine, don't you realize that someone goes out and cuts down a tree, he takes part of it, and he makes a god for himself, and from the rest of it, he makes a fire to cook his dinner? They are gods who might just as easily have become firewood. Some truly impressive gods. Even though they have faces carved into them, they are not alive. Even though they have eyes, they cannot see anything. They have ears, but they cannot hear their people when they pray. When people fall down before their idols, their prayers fall on deaf ears. From our modern 21st century point of view, that seems just so obvious, doesn't it? Of course, a piece of wood or stone with a face carved on it cannot answer our prayers. It's not listening to us. When we cry out to it, but before we join in mocking this ancient foolishness, we need to recognize that even though there aren't any wooden idols in our houses, there is still idolatry. Just like people in antiquity, we are we are people who are tempted to bow down before the things that promise us safety and abundance and good lives. The idols of our day are things like wealth and materialism, education and good health. Social status, honor, comfort, they are good things, of course, things that we are tempted to make into ultimate things, the sources of our hope and assurance and our peace. People sacrifice at the altars of these false gods, hoping hoping against hope that their prayers will be answered, that they will receive the security and the assurance and the peace that they long for. The God of Scripture says that idols have ears, but they cannot hear us. They do not regard us. But He does. He hears His people in their distress. He says, in a time of favor, I have answered you. There is only one God who hears us when we pray and who answers our pleas for help, who is able to providentially and powerfully deliver us. Third, God's people should pray because his plans are better. For people trapped in Babylon, it's easy to imagine that life was pretty miserable. Most of them remembered their home city and the lives that they had before being conquered, and they dreamed of a day when they would be free to go back. But in this passage, God tells them that they are dreaming too small. In their captivity, it's easy to understand why these people dreamed of freedom, where they long for their home and want to get back there, but God's plans for them are far better. He says in verses 9 and 10 that they shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. It's a promise that goes far beyond the hopes of these people. They will be free, They will go home and rebuild, but God is doing something so much more than that. He is moving all of history toward an ultimate redemption, the ultimate deliverance. He has in view a day when even on the barren hilltops there is a feast to be enjoyed, when the idea of hunger is a distant memory, when the sun shines but there is no such thing as a sunburn or a day that is too hot, when the wind blows And storms come and go, but only ever bring beauty and not destruction. When it is always just right a breeze when you want one, and wind when you want to fly a kite. Maybe that sounds silly. Maybe it sounds trite. But it also sounds like paradise. And that's exactly how the book of Revelation describes heaven using this verse from Isaiah 49 as a place where there is no hunger or thirst or scorching heat from the, from the sun or from wind. God's plans are better than ours, because no matter how big we dream, our hopes are always too small, which is why Paul describes God as one who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. In prayer, God's people give voice to our hopes and our dreams, but we trust in God's plans, whatever they are, that they are better than the very best things that we hope for. In a sermon that he delivered at Oxford in 1942, C.S. Lewis said that God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he simply cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. In prayer, we acknowledge that and we put our trust in God, whose plans are always better than ours. Fourth, God's people should pray because God is in control. He is sovereign, doing all that He wills with all wisdom. And this is important because in the ancient world and today, People want to be in control, we want to be in control, and it's hard to let go of the wheel. When it's yanked from our grasp, we are dismayed by that. When the stock market takes a dive or we face an unforeseen health crisis or something simple happens, like we slip on a patch of ice, we are reminded that we are never in, never in as much control as we maybe liked to believe. And that is why idolatry was so alluring for ancient Israel and still is today, because it gives people the appearance of control, because idols are dependent on their worshipers. They need to be served in order to exist. In antiquity, idols literally needed people to provide things like food, and in return, they would provide things like a good harvest or fertility or good health. It was an arrangement that put people in control. If they did what the gods wanted, then they were entitled to expect a certain reward, and the same is true with modern idolatry. The gods of the modern world work the same way. If I sacrifice at the altar of career success, then I am entitled to expect a promotion, a big paycheck, and the respect of my peers. Idolatry is an attempt to be in control, to get the life that we want. But God reminds His people in this passage that He is the one in control. He will not be manipulated or extorted, And that is good news. Of course, we already know because his plans, as we've already seen, are far greater than what we hope for. He says in verse 10 that he is the one who leads his people by springs of water, and that he is the one who guides them. He is not led or guided. He leads. He guides. He's not carried like the idols that the people worship. Instead, he says in chapter 46, I have carried you from the day you were born, and I will carry you even to your old age. He is not manipulated or extorted. He is not in debt to anyone, and he does not withhold his blessing until his requirements are met. He will not be manipulated by us by saying, I'll give you the thing you want so that you can give me the thing I want. Instead, he blesses and sustains his people even in their rebellion so that his people are debtors to his mercy. He promises and then accomplishes salvation for sinners, and he does not wait for those sinners to be perfect people who have satisfied all of his demands. Instead, in the person and work of his Son, God saves those who don't even know how much they need his grace until they have already received it. In prayer, we acknowledge and celebrate that it is good that he is in control. We express our thankfulness and our longings and declare that he is sovereign for our good. Fifth, God's people pray because his vision is bigger than ours. We already know, of course, that our dreams are too small, that God intends to give more than we can fathom to ask, but the heart of this passage shows us that this kindness extends further than we may realize at first. He says in verses 11 and 12, I will make all my mountains a road and my highways will be raised up, Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west and from the land of the Syene, which is a place in Egypt that's far south of Israel. God is going to draw to himself people from distant places to experience the blessing that he describes in this passage, places far beyond the borders of Israel and Judah. This passage is full of a missionary zeal that reveals God's heart for the nations because his promise is bigger Than any one person or any one people can possibly bear. In ancient Israel, of course, this was unthinkable. They had a hard time accepting that God would bless anyone else. There's a whole book of the Bible that's about what happens when God sends a prophet to a foreign land to proclaim the truth. The prophet Jonah ran in the opposite direction because he knew God's gracious character and he didn't want to see any other nation receive his mercy. It's true that Israel was God's chosen people. But that certainly does not mean that God's love only extended to the borders of that nation and no further. Long before Jesus commissioned his disciples to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, God's heart for the lost in distant places was evident. Here in Isaiah 49, he makes clear that he is not just going to call a few people from distant places, he's going to level mountains and fill in valleys to build a highway that's big enough for them all. In the modern West, where we typically think in terms of individuality, Individuality is how we think about life and a relationship with God. So this passage is an important reminder to us. God calls people like Abraham or Moses or Paul, and in every case, it's so that through them he can reach the multitude. He never stops at the level of the individual. And prayer has a way of aligning us with God's heart for others, whether they are on the other side of the globe or sitting in the pew right next to you. When we pray for others, we are reminding ourselves of what Scripture reveals, that God cares about those people, whoever they are. Even the people that we have a hard time loving ourselves. That His vision is bigger than ours. That He is at work in the lives of people that we don't even know. And that His blessing and goodwill go further than we can see. Maybe you hear all of this and you're thinking what many people in Captivity in Babylon probably thought when they heard it, too. You look around your life, and you see disaster after disaster. You remember good days, but you also remember when they crumble. They're long gone now, and in their place there is only disappointment and bitterness. For people trapped in captivity, God's promises in Isaiah 49 seem more like mockery than comfort, perhaps more pain than reassurance. That mindset is captured in verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. The people of Jerusalem, which God calls Zion in this passage, say, what do these promises mean to me? Look around. Where is God right now? Maybe you know that feeling. And all the good news in this chapter, all these promises, just ring hollow to you. If that is how you feel, I want you to hear God's answer. If it's not how you feel, know that a day is coming when you will, and remember God's answer. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you we could ask any mother in the room, what would it take for your love for your child to run dry? The answer in every case would be some variation of it never will. It never, ever will. Yet God says his love runs deeper and deeper. Even as impossible as it seems for a mother to stop loving her child, it is more impossible for God to stop loving you. Because, he says in verse 16, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Those are idioms that God uses to convey the depth of his love. Your walls are continually before me is a reference to city walls, the barrier that protected people, the barrier that Babylon breached when they took the city. They represent security and the ability to be at rest. Because without city walls, The people are vulnerable. It is God's way of saying, your well-being is always on my mind, and I will bring you to safety. But what does he mean when he says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands? That expression is unprecedented. It doesn't show up anywhere else. The word engraved that God uses here is one that's used elsewhere in Scripture to describe carving something into stone, so it is permanent. Unlike a piece of paper, it will last. In Isaiah 22, the same word is used to describe someone cutting a tomb out of solid rock. The image that this word brings to mind is that of a hammer and a chisel, blow by blow, cutting away stone to make an enduring mark. God is saying that His love is permanent. It cannot be washed away or erased. It is carved into His hands like a chisel carves into stone. It is there forever. He will not forget His people. He will not forget you. But it would be hundreds of years before the people would be able to understand how truly and how literally God meant what he said. When the hands of God's Son were pierced with the nails that hung him on the cross, the promise of Isaiah 49 was fulfilled. And with the swing of a hammer, love made its indelible mark. His love for them and his love for you was carved into his own hands he was forsaken so that you would not be. He endured God's judgment and wrath so that you could receive his love and his mercy. This is the God we worship, and this is the God we pray to. And that is the sixth thing that this passage brings to our minds, that brings us to our knees in prayer. God's people pray because he is compassionate. And you are tempted by despair, When loneliness and affliction and God's bitter providence make you doubt his love for you, look at the cross, where his love for you was carved into his hands forever. Your name is written there in the scars that are on his hands. And in your suffering, the suffering you endure today, know that you are not alone. He is with you, suffering, so that a day will come when you will be set free from captivity to sin and guilt. He knows you. He knows your heart. He knows the best and the worst parts of who you really are. He knows the things that you don't want anyone to know, and He knows the pride that you feel about the things that you want everyone to know. He knows you, and His love for you endures more than the love of a mother for her child. It is as solid as a stone, and because that is true, we can approach Him with joy. We can pray with our hearts pouring out before Him in prayers that join in the chorus of voices that say, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on the afflicted. It is the gospel that stirs our hearts with such joy that prayer is not a thing that we resolve to do more of, but something that we find we cannot do without. It is the realization that he is powerful, and generous, and sovereign, and worthy, and compassionate, and that He listens to you when you lift your voice to Him. So, as we begin this year focused on prayer together, it is not with a resolution to pray more, but a longing to be nearer to God. If we begin to see God as He is, we will become people who desire to align ourselves with who He is and what He's doing. We will pray more. Not because we determined that this year is going to be better, but because we cannot help doing otherwise. Let's pray together. Father, we honor you today. We praise you for your power, your kindness, your sovereignty, your worthiness, your compassion, and that you listen to us when We lift our voices to you. You listen to us even now. We praise you because you have given us the precious gift of prayer and communion with you. We ask, Lord, that you would press the gospel into our hearts such that we come to you with prayer at all times. That we pour our hearts out before you because we know you're listening that we are people of prayer, like Simeon, who we learned about two weeks ago, from whom prayer flowed from his, his, the very depth of his being. We pray that you would do this work in us by captivating us with the hope and beauty of the gospel. We ask all these things, Lord, in the name of your Son. Amen.